The words, I love you, and nothing will ever change that are powerful words. To say to someone, I forgive you, is perhaps one of the greatest gifts that we can give to another human being. But you know what's a reality for lots of us? We struggle to receive forgiveness. We struggle to forgive ourselves. It just seems too easy. It seems too good to be true. And the reason for that is because better than anyone, we know. We know what we've done. We know who we've hurt. We know what's in our own hearts. And so that's why it's hard for us to really accept and embrace forgiveness. We wrestle with the weight of guilt and shame. And we battle with the memories of past regrets. Several years ago, I spoke at a Wednesday night service at Life Center. And after I got done, a woman came up to me afterwards, and she told me her story just briefly, gave me the highlights of her experience. She had a past of drug abuse and prostitution. And that was, you know, kind of shocking. And yet then she told me, because I knew her, and I knew how much she loved Jesus. Then she told me how she came to know the Lord and how God saved her and how she knew, she knew that she belonged to Jesus. And yet with tears streaming down her eyes, he told me, but Kurt, there's hardly a day goes by where I don't still wrestle with shame. She said, I have a hard time forgiving myself. Though her past sins may be different than yours or mine. The truth is many of us, might I say most of us, have the same struggle. Too many of us live in the shadows of our past. And God doesn't want you to live there. We're finishing the series today, uh, Questions You Can't Ask Your Mama. And each week I've said, if you could ask your mama, if you could ask her this question, what can I do now about past failures? This is what mama would say. It's in your uh, outline. She'd say, son, daughter, nobody's perfect. Everyone needs forgiveness. And the good news is that you don't have to live in despair over your past. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done. And, and I know, some of you know, wait a minute, it, 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 what do you, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done, how bad you've messed up your life, how bad it was messed up, or how messed up it may be right now. The good news today is that God is bigger than your past. He's bigger than your problems. And He's better than you can possibly imagine. There's nothing that He can't restore. Nothing. Nothing that He can't repair and fix and make new. No one beyond the power of His grace and His mercy. And I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. And so I want us to consider today, what do you do? How do we handle the reality of past or present failures? And I'm going to give you three things, and they all start with an R. And I don't do that to be cute. I do that to help you remember. Because I tell you, I, I know, years and years ago, I learned these simple truths, and I've walked this out in my own life. And it's powerful. If you can get, just remember these three things, it'll revolutionize the way you live, the way you walk with God. The first thing, how do we handle past things? Number one, run to the place of grace and stay there. And I mean run. Run to the place of grace. Run to that place of grace with God. See, our tendency is to run away from God. Anybody here ever run away from God? Let me see. Okay, look around. Everybody else. Our tendencies are to run away from God, sometimes in fear, sometimes in shame, sometimes in confusion. We flee from Him rather than to Him. Our internal voice, and certainly the voice of Satan, says that God's disgusted with you. Ever heard that voice? You are one big 
idiot. You've messed up so bad. You, I am, God is just fed up. He's done with you. And so we run and we hide because that's the voice we listen to. Either our own voice or the voice of the enemy. And the, the enemy, Satan's called the accuser. It's one of the names for Satan in the Bible. We see God like he's an umpire. Anybody watch the game last night? You know, we think God's out there calling the strikes and calling the balls and just waiting for the opportunity to call you out of there. We look at God like he's this umpire. Or some of us still look at God like he's the school principal. I was on a first-name basis with my school principal. And uh, we, we, we look at it like God's up there. He's just waiting to bust you. And, and going to his office is scary and bad, and, and you don't want to go there. Some of us are terrified of God like we're terrified of our own dads. When I was just a little boy, we lived uh, for one year in Billings, Montana. Lived on a beet farm outside of town. And as a kid, it's a great place to live. I had lots of great memories. But we were visiting a friend, uh, family. Uh, I don't remember their names. And, and they had a boy about my age. And I don't remember his name either, but we'll call him Buster. But uh, Buster and I were always getting in trouble together. And this particular time, uh, he had some matches that he found, a box of matches. Now, um, I will tell you up front, I like fire. I don't think I'm a pyro, but the dancing flames fascinate me. (laughs) Every guy, you know, I mean, why do you think they pour on all that extra fluid, you know, on the barbecue? Because they like it, you know. They don't need it, they like it. (laughs) But Buster and I grabbed this box of matches and we went down the the, uh, street to this field, this big field, and uh, started playing with matches. And I don't know what happened. It was not intentional. But before I knew it, the whole field is on fire. It's surrounded on three sides by homes. And uh, we stood there and watched for a while. Wow, look, cool, you know. Fire, you know. And then we realized, we are in it. We're in so much trouble. And so we did what everybody would do in that situation. We ran. Dropped the matches and booked. We ran. I ran as fast and as hard as I could. And I run, ran around the corner into Buster's yard, and guess who I ran into? My daddy. My dad. And he grabbed me by the shirt, and I'm, I'm like six years old, and I still remember this. He looked me in the eye, and I'm sure he saw guilt, you know. He said, boy, do you have anything to do with that in this huge plume of smoke, you know? I lied. No, Dad, I was down there, but I saw it, but we did, I didn't do anything. I ran and I lied because of fear. I was terrified of my dad and his temper, and it was pretty much that way for most of my life. In fact, I never told him what happened until just a few years before he died, and then he laughs about it. Go figure. But I was terrified of my dad. Listen to me. Listen. Many, many live with a messed up perspective of God. They live in fear and terror of Him, and they don't understand the loving heart of God of our Father in Heaven. We don't understand that the best place to be when we fail is in His presence. That the best place to run to is the throne of God because it is a throne of grace and mercy. I want to read to you a passage from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. And listen to what it says here. It says, We have a great high priest who's gone to heaven, Jesus the Son of God, Let us cling to Him and never stop trusting Him. Great picture. Hold on. Cling to Him and never stop trusting Him. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For He faced all the same temptations we do, yet He did not sin. And He clarifies here, Jesus faced them, but He beat them all. 
But He knows us and He knows that we aren't and haven't beat them all. Verse 16 says, So let us come boldly. I love this verse. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it. Let's come boldly, run to the throne of grace. This passage makes at least two things very clear. First, that God the Son understands our weaknesses. And I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort to me. That God gets me. That He understands me. He knows what it's like to be human and to be tempted. He gets that. He knows what we face. And the second thing this passage makes very clear is that because He knows, we're invited to come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. He gets us. He knows us. And He says, so come. Come to me. In fact, as we do, we don't find His judgment. We don't find the wrath of God. We find mercy and grace. We find His help, it says. His help. Regardless of what we're struggling with, regardless of our past failures, we find the grace, the goodness, and the help of God. What do you do if you've committed adultery? What do you do if you've been sexually promiscuous? What do you do if you've been hooked on porn? What do you do if your past is filled with regrets? How do you handle the reality of past or present failures? Here it is in one sentence. You run to God, not from Him. Run to God, not from Him. I turn from my sin. The Bible calls that repentance. I've been going this way, blowing it, making mistakes, failing, walking away from God. And, and repentance just means to turn around. I turn and now I'm going toward God, towards that throne of grace. I turn, I repent, I run to Him, I come to Him. And there, what do I find? God with His finger waiting to just smack me? Harsh and ugly and mean? Do I come and tear and fear? No. The Bible says we, we, we run to what? The throne of God's grace and mercy. We find His goodness there. And so the first thing you need to do, and it goes against everything we naturally do, is you run to God. When you blow it, run to Him. Here's the second thing. Once we're at His feet and embraced by His grace, the second thing we do, number two, is we rest in God's unconditional love. We rest. First you run to Him, and then you rest in His presence. You rest in His unconditional love. Here's a little truth. Ready? This is so profound, you're going to walk out here just amazed today. Ready? You'll never be perfect. You will never be perfect. In fact, turn to someone next to you and say, I'm never going to be perfect. Go ahead, say it. I'm never going to... Some of you said, I know. <laughs> Spouse is going, yeah, like that's news to me. You know. You'll never, you're never going to get it all right all the time. And so here's the problem. That's true. And so here's the problem. If God's love is based on my perfection, if it's based on my performance, then I'm going to be in trouble most of the time. If it's based on how good I do, you know, life and things, and if His love is based on that, then I'm going to be in trouble. You see, I've been a Christian for over 30 years and I still sin. And if that bothers you, go to another church. Because I, you know, I'm not perfect. I, you know, the good news is I don't sin as much as I used to. And I don't tend not to sin in the same areas. I have grown. I am growing. That's, that's great. That's truth. But I still blow it. As long as I'm in this earth suit, in this body, on this planet, I am not and will not be perfect in all I think, say, and do. And even if I look perfect, somebody think, oh, no way, Kurt, you're always perfect. 
Even if you look and you say, well, I see what you do and it looks perfect. That's the outside. Then there's this other thing called my soul, my heart, my mind. And so there's this think part of me that even when I'm doing the right thing, sometimes I'm thinking the wrong thing. Anybody else? You know? I'm going to love this person. And inside you're going, I hate this person. We'll hope you die of boils, you know. And, I mean, so you can do the right thing and still have this heart issue. We're not perfect. Now, I stand justified. Don't be scared by that word. That just means just as if I've never sinned. You read that word in the Bible, justified means just as if I've never sinned. I stand justified before God. But listen, I am still in the process of being what the Bible calls sanctified. Another, you know, 50 cent word that scares us. But that just means I am being made into the image of God's Son. I am being made perfect. I'm being perfected, made pure and holy in my lifestyle. Every day for the rest of my life until I'm with Jesus. That's the process. I stand in right standing with God. And yet I am being sanctified, working out my salvation. God has given me His righteousness. And therefore I have right standing with Him. And yet I still have this old nature that does battle with my new nature. And God, listen guys, God understands that reality. He gets that. And that's why His love is not based on your performance. Here's something I've said before. And if you hang around here, you'll hear it many, many times. Because this is where I live. This is, this is, this is my heart. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And nothing you can do to make Him love you less. Nothing. But, but, nothing. Nothing you can do to make God love you any more than He always has. And nothing you can do to make Him love you any less. His love for you is not based on your performance. It's not based on how good you are. Please hang on to this passage. We read it last week. I want to read it again. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. I don't know, it doesn't get any clearer than that. How did I get you know, from where I was to relationship with Jesus to salvation? From what He did by, by saving me through the sacrifice He made on the cross. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that... Having been justified, made just as if I've never sinned, justified by His what? Grace. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. What saves us? It's not the righteous things that we do, but the kindness, the love, and the mercy of God. What justifies us? Well, we have been justified, it says here, by His grace. And that means that I was loved unconditionally before I ever made the right decision and became a Christ follower. I, he loved me before I ever even acknowledged His existence. He loved me unconditionally then, and listen, He still loves me unconditionally now. The Apostle Paul asked the question in Romans 8.35, probably one of the greatest chapters in the book of Romans, if not the greatest chapter in the New Testament. In Romans 8.35, he asked this question, What can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from the love of God? And he answers that with this absolute clarity in verse 38 and 39. Paul says, for I am convinced. He said, there's no question. This is not negotiable. I I got this. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. I want to point that one out. Neither 
my present, my past, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing will ever separate you from that unconditional love of God. Having lived in California about half my life, I've been in several earthquakes, several more than I ever wanted to be in. And it's a weird thing when the ground starts doing its own thing, you know, and you're kind of like under its control for a moment. I'm in a grocery store. Worked at a place called Alpha Beta. They don't even exist anymore. But, and uh, earlier in the morning, earthquake hit. And, uh, you know, not a good place to be, grocery store, especially if you know, certain aisles where there's cans and stuff. But anyway, I'm, I'm in the store, and I watched. I saw this mom. And she had two kids with her, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years old. She grabbed those two kids, and she did this thing. And I, at that point, I'm thinking, she's crushing them to death. You know, they would have been safer with that, but she's, she just pulled them in, and she held them so tight, nothing was going to separate those kids from her. Why? Because she loved them more than her own life. Nothing separates you from the love of God. God wants you to rest in that unconditional love. Stop trying to earn what you already have. If you, can, if you can get this, I'm telling you, this will revolutionize your relationship with God. Stop trying to earn what you already have. It doesn't matter what rocks your world, even if it's your stupidity. God's going to hold on to you. Now, one more thing. Now, that doesn't mean, listen to me very carefully now, because I know some of you, the more righteous among us, are thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. What about? And, and let me tell you, it doesn't mean that we abuse the grace and the mercy and the love of God by doing whatever we want. What we do matters. That's the truth. Which takes us to the final point this morning. How do I, how do I handle past failures? Number three, resolve to grow. Resolve to grow. I run to the throne of grace. When I'm there, I rest in His presence, in His unconditional love for me. And my attitude there is just is everything. I come, I rest, I am embraced by Him. And then I, I make this choice. I resolve to grow. Resting in His love does not mean to give up. It do, does not mean to do whatever we, we want to do. It does not mean to run amok. Isn't that a great word, amok? I didn't know how to spell it. I get, it's A-M-U-C-K. I just love that word now, amok. You're being amok right now. But it, to, to run amok, and, and it doesn't mean that. Some have foolishly thought that, that uh, you know, well, because I've got God's grace and because it's unconditional love, you know, I can just do whatever I want. Just the opposite is true. It does matter. See, because of the amazing grace and unconditional love of God, we should want to do the right thing for the right reasons. In fact, here's a conviction I have. When you come to God and you're in His presence and you are embraced by His unconditional love, you will want to do the right thing for the right reasons. It, you get that inside of you and, and it changes your motivation. Paul said in Romans 6, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? And the answer is, of course not. Paul had to deal with the same issue that some of us have to deal with. Well, since I've got this unconditional love of God and this amazing grace that He offers to me, then it doesn't really matter. I might as well just go party hardy, have a great life, do whatever I want to, because the more I sin, the more grace I have. 
That was the foolish thinking of some people in Paul's day, and unfortunately, I think it's the foolish thinking of some in our day. Like I've said each week in this series, when you truly know and experience the goodness of God, you will want to respond to it. Because love draws forth love. Brennan Manning is one of my favorite authors. says, love calls forth, it draws forth love. His great love motivates and inspires me to want to be more like Him. Being in His presence, resting in His love, creates in me a desire to want to change. To want to be just like Jesus. And so, when I fail, it's not an if, but when I fail, I, just, I don't just go through failure, I grow through it. I don't just go through whatever I'm going through and, oh well, no, I, I grow through it. I don't just wallow in my past or present mistakes, I learn from them. Someone once said, I fail forward. I like that. I fail forward. I'm going to fall. So are you. I'm going to fail. So are you. But when we do, resolve to grow. See, I'm determined to learn from my mistakes because I want to out of love for God. Long time ago, many years ago, I worked for a data processing for a bank. And I made a mistake that cost the bank thousands of dollars. I submitted a job twice and blah, blah, blah. I ran some stuff and, I mean, it, it, it created all these reports, pallets full. And uh, I, I blew it. And I, I didn't do it intentionally, but I wasn't careful. I didn't do my job. I didn't do it right. My boss's boss the divisional manager, made an appointment for me to see him the day after that. And uh, I had an appointment to go into his office, and I thought, sure, I'm, gonna, I'm toast. And I went in, I'm, I'm sweating bullets, man. I am, I am nervous, and I sit down. He's working on some papers on his desk. He doesn't even look up at me. And I'm convinced he's working on my walking papers. You know. He's working on my, you know, here you go, you're out of here, see you later, you're, you, know, you screwed up, and blah, blah, blah. And he's working on his papers at his desk for the longest time. You know, I'm seeing like forever. It's probably only 30 seconds. But I'm squirming. And I'm, you know, I'm, you know, this, this. And just, come on, man. Get to this. I just get it over with. Doesn't even look up at me. He asked me one question. He said, did you learn anything from what happened? And I nervously chuckled, you know. That kind of that laughter you get when you're kind of nervous and you get that, oh, yeah, you yeah. Well, he looked up at me and he said, well, get out of here. I, don't, I, I can't afford to fire you. I've just spent too much money teaching you a very valuable lesson. Oh, you know, okay. <laughs> I left. Listen, guys, God's not looking for a reason to fire you. But he does want you to grow. When it's all said and done, when you've run to God rather than from Him, when you've rested in and been comforted and held by His unconditional love, resolve to grow. Commit to the process of being transformed into the image of His Son. I want to finish with one more story. It's a story that Jesus, of Jesus with this woman caught in the act of adultery. And what happened is that the teachers of the law, the supposedly religious guys of the day, uh, brought this woman to Jesus. And it says that they wanted to trap him. 
Uh, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like what he was doing. And so they kept looking for a way to get him in trouble and to get him busted and to, you know, get rid of him. And so uh, this woman, the law said that she should be stoned to death. Committed adultery, it's toast. You're over, it's done. Everybody pick up a rock and let's take care of this issue. <clears throat> they bring her to Jesus, suspecting that he's going to be merciful, trying to trap him. Let me pick it up in John 8, verse 6. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he was writing. You can speculate. But when they kept on questioning him, boy, they're in his face. Hey, hey, what are you going to do? Well, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I want you to use that God-given imagination you have and see what's going on. Jesus has been teaching, doing what he does, taking care of people, loving on them, giving them God's truth. All of a sudden there's this commotion and a crowd of guys, we don't know how many, you know, a handful, 15, who knows, that have got this woman in tow. And she is a mess. She looks, you know, like she's been dragged through the streets because she had been. Mascara running down her face, hair messed up. She's got this look of shame and guilt and fear and terror in her eyes. And they drag her to Jesus. And I'm sure she collapses in a heap there. And these guys are in his face. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? This woman, she's caught in the very act of adultery. Look at what she's done. And they kept pressing him, kept questioning him while he's doodling in the dirt. You kind of love the Lord, right? He stands up, and I suspect, you know, we, we can't hear the tone here, but I imagine he said this pretty firmly. You know, Jesus had a little bit of a righteous anger problem, and from time to time he could get pretty intense. Righteous anger. But, but uh, I'm sure he looked at those guys and said, whichever one of you is without sin, you pick up the first stone and kill her. Back to the dirt, you know. And they're like, what? You know, and he's down here. And one by one, says the oldest first. Why? Because he'd sin the most. The older we are, the more we have history. Oldest guy, he's out of there. All the way down to the youngest, and they're gone. And then Jesus stands up. Oh. <laughs> With a completely different tone. With a completely different look on his face, he looks at that woman, this heap of brokenness, and he says to her, where are those that have condemned you? Is, is, are, where do they go? Just, they're, they're gone. No one's left, Lord. And then with tenderness, he says, neither do I condemn you. But go your way and sin you no more. Leave your life of sin. I'm convinced that this woman understood something that day that we all desperately need to understand. That we can come to God with anything and everything. 
I, I can't think of too many more embarrassing sin situations to get caught in than the very act of adultery. Anybody else got a better one than that? I mean, you know, it's shameful, guilty. And yet the heart of our Father is seen through this act of Jesus. Come, find His love, find His mercy. And then, and I love this story because, and then when you do, what does He say? He says, I don't condemn you either. I love you. You have my mercy. You have my grace. And yet He says, now resolve to grow. That's paraphrasing. Basically what it's saying is, go your way and stop sinning. Grow through this. Don't just go through it. Run, rest, resolve. Remember that. I'm going to ask Joel to come back and I want to pray for you guys. Would you bow your heads right now? Let me just pray. Father, some of us, me included, Lord, have failed you so many times. Some of us, Lord, have a pretty tainted history. But every one of us, God, have this in common. The Bible says all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the goodness, the perfection of God. And so we all share in common this morning this reality. We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your goodness. We need your unconditional love. And we need to grow. And it's my prayer, Father, that right here in this moment, in this few final minutes together this morning, that you would pour into our soul, into our hearts, this revelation, God, that maybe we've theologically, mentally understood this before, but Lord, that it would, that it would pour into our hearts and souls the truth that there's nothing, nothing, that we can't come to you with. That there's nothing, nothing we could ever do that would separate us from your love, God. And that your call is a call to mercy, a call to grace, and then a call to change because of your love. Lord, some of us have lived in fear of you. We've listened to the voice of the enemy. We've listened to our own voice. And we've run, Lord, just like Adam and Eve. We, we've run. We've run from you. We've tried to hide. God, this morning I pray that there would not be a person here who would continue in the shadows of their past. But that we would run. That we would come. That we would know the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness, and the love of And Lord, during this time, I also pray for those who have not yet chosen for the first time to receive that grace. They, they've been investigating Christianity. They've been looking, searching for truth. And this morning, oh God, please. Please, Lord, go right now and show them that you want them to walk with you. That you've called them to know you. That you want to forgive them 
and that they would choose you today. That in these moments, Lord, they would say, I need you, God. I have failed, and I want you to come into my heart, into my life. Pour out your grace on us now, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.